in the queue. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Pastor Craig, uh, Keith, Amy, uh, thank you so much. Sojourn, um, you have been a part of our ministry for the past several years, and we deeply, deeply appreciate you, your prayers, your support for us. Um, and actually, our young thespians, the actors, thank you so much. I, we definitely can, I was actually tearing up watching your skit because I can say with out a shadow of a doubt. I remember those times when we felt desperate. I remember getting like the thousand dollar bills that we just, I mean, money was tight. We didn't have it. And then I would open my email and two people, this is a true story. Two people gave a $500 out of the blue donation each. Um, you know, right now we're, we're traveling, we're speaking at churches and there's a bit of a pressure that we have to, you know, book the services. We've got to get into churches, share our story, invite people to join us. Um, and sometimes it's hard. We were starting out this itineration and I just felt like overwhelmed by everything that was kind of facing us. And I started praying 24 hours from that moment, three churches that we did not contact contacted us and said, hey, just thinking about you and we'd like to have you in first service. Sojourn is one of those. <laughs> Keith wrote me and I was like, man, God, you're so awesome. You're answering these prayers and opening up doors, things that we couldn't have done on our own. Your skit was awesome. So thank you. Thank you so much. So um, our family, uh, Jessica, Toby, and Savannah, we are serving in Brussels, Belgium. Now, while we were serving in Europe, we were hearing rumors of a controversy, a controversy happening here in America that is threatening to rend the very fabric of our churches. Um, congregations are fighting with one another. Husbands and wives are not speaking. Pastors are getting run out of town. And there is a large, sizable group of people in the churches in the United States that are saying, we want, we love, we love the worship. It's good. The fellowship, the community, all those things are great. But we want more sermons on Greek adverbs. It's, it's true, more people are wanting, but there's another group that is saying, we want more sermons on Hebrew idioms. It's, it's true, a Hebrew idiom, if only we can add this into our church, then we, just, we would be so blessed. And well, we're just humble vessels of the Lord, and we prayed, God, if you can use us in a way to help meet this need that is in the church, we don't wanna see your church divided. And so we're praying, and how can we incorporate both Greek adverbs and Hebrew idioms into one sermon, and the Lord is good. I think, I think we can do it today. So um, we're gonna start, though, with a, a fun little story in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. I'm not going to read the text uh, just for sake of time. I'm going to kind of summarize, but if you want to write it down, it's Numbers chapter 21 verses 4 through 9. Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9. Now, the Israelites, they are currently in 
the wilderness. God had, he sent Moses, miraculously delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai, the whole covenant, every, it was awesome. God revealed himself to the people. They entered into covenant with him. It's beautiful. Of course, things go wrong. They end up staying for 40 years in the wilderness. That was not God's original plan, but here they are. They're in the wilderness. And Numbers 21 is about the 40th year. So they've been there for a long time, and the text says that they grew impatient. Um, I don't know about you. I'm 40 years old this year. Um, I have been impatient. It takes me a little, it, it's not quite as long as 40 years for me to get impatient, but here it is, 40 years, they're getting impatient, and they speak against Moses. They begin to complain, and they're frustrated. They don't like the food. They had the food, right? The manna, the quail that God had been providing for them, but they don't like it, they, and they speak against Moses much worse than that. They speak against God, and it apparently was a very serious situation because God, in response to this, in response to their complaining, sent um, what the text, maybe your version says, fiery serpents or poisonous snakes. Um, the idea is that when they bite you, it feels like, a, like it's a fire. Your leg is on fire. And even today, when you go into the Sinai Peninsula, you have to wear these high boots, at least as I'm told, if you ever get there, um, wear the high boots because they have those desert adders that will bite you. It'll make your, your leg feel like it's on fire. And so it's this poisonous venom. People were getting bit and they were actually dying from this. So it was a very serious situation. Now, um, the people then did something very, very significant, really extraordinary to see. Um, they repented. They confess their sin. They admit what they've done, and they ask Moses, Moses, would you pray for us? Intercede on our behalf and pray for us. Um, and so then God, he hears, the, he hears Moses' prayer, he hears the intercession, and he gives some instructions to Moses. This might sound a little weird, but he says, Moses, I want you to make a snake out of bronze. Take some bronze, fashion it into a snake, and you're going to put it up on a pole. Now, everyone who was then bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake that was up on a pole, and they would be healed. Now, it's very important to see what exactly is happening here. What is, what is happening with this bronze snake on the pole? People are getting bit. Um, God, when he, when he shows them, they see that snake. The snake is a symbol, and he says, I want you to look at the snake, and I want you to see the snake is the punishment, the punishment that they deserve. I want you to see the snake and I want you to see the punishment that you deserve. And as you look at that, you would think of me, you would think of my love, you would trust in me, my love and my grace, and you would be healed. That's kind of how it was working for them. Now, I know you're, I see the restlessness. Where's the Greek adverb? Um, how are we gonna get into a Greek adverb here? Okay, so now, that's a little context here. I want you to go forward then into the Gospel of John in chapter 3, okay? The Gospel of John chapter 3. I understand you've been studying the Gospel of John in the class. Are you at chapter 3 yet? Oh, to... 
okay, okay. So we're picking right up. God's, God's working this out. So Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. So they have this conversation at night. Night, as you know, I understand, it's a good time to have a nice, long, uninterrupted conversation between the two of them. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. You've heard of Pharisees, right? Kind of have a bad reputation in the New Testament. Um, if, if that's all you've read, you kind of just tend to think, well, Pharisees are the bad guys. Um, these are the ones that Jesus has a lot of criticism of the Pharisees. Understand a little bit of, of how they were socially in the life of ancient Israel. Um, these were passionate followers of Judaism. There's a lot, we could spend the whole morning talking about what it meant to be a Pharisee. Um, they were largely concerned with Israel as a nation that was set apart. They were different from the other nations around them. And it seems like they were very uh, particular about um, the rules and following the rules concerning clean and unclean food, because that was a way that they saw their, they were able to express how they're different than all the other nations around them. So this is kind of who Nicodemus is. Um, you certainly, you would not say that he's like a lukewarm follower of Judaism. He's a passionate follower of Judaism. He's having this conversation and he probably has, you know, this idea of we're a different people, pretty strong in the fabric of who he is and his worldview and how he thinks we're different than other people. So verses 14, 15, okay? Verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. You just read that or talked about that. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man too, or so too the Son of Man must likewise, I'm sorry, I'm reading from the wrong place. Okay, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Let me read that one more time because I messed it up. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus is reminding them of this story. Moses, he made the bronze snake. He put it up on a pole in the same way the son of man. He says son of man, he's talking about himself. The son of man must likewise be lifted up. Now catch what he's referring to here. He says lifted up. We're not talking about worshiping, like lift up the name of Jesus. He's talking about a cross. The snake was put on a pole, the son of man. Jesus is going to be lifted up and put up onto a cross. And then we get to this verse. Um, many of you probably have this memorized, John three sixteen. And it reads, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now here it is, here's the word so. The word so is a, can be a little bit misleading. Now, um, I first learned John 3.16, I was given it as like, here's a verse to memorize. And I memorized it outside of the context of the story in which it happened. And so I read the word so, and I took it as a kind of intensifier. Um, so for example, I can say, I love Belgian waffles so much. And it's kind of intensified, which by the way, if you've never had a Belgian waffle, they are really 
really delicious and not very much like what you get here in the United States. Um, if you ever do come to, to Belgium and were there at the time, let me know because I will take you to the most wonderful Belgian waffle stand. It's right outside the Grand Place in Brussels. We'll get them and we'll walk in. It's delicious. So you can take this word so. God so loved the world um, as this kind of intensifier. Now this word so is a translation of a Greek adverb. Okay, here we go. The Greek adverb is hutos. Can you say hutos? Hutos. You're learning a Greek adverb. Now this word means so uh, in this way. In this manner, or like this, in this way. So remember, why did God have Moses put a snake on a pole? Because he loved the Israelites, and he wanted to forgive them. They repented, they confessed their sin, and they asked for Moses to intercede, and God wanted to forgive them, he wanted to heal them. And now Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he says, not for God so much loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He's saying, just like Moses lifted up that bronze snake for the people to look at, in that same way God gave that grace, he also is giving his son that we would look on him, his one and only son. We would see him on the cross and we would see the punishment that we deserve. And that when we look at him, we see him raised up on the cross, we see the punishment that we deserve, we would recognize and see God's great love for us, that we would believe in him, that we would have eternal life. Now, this is, I, I think right here, this is where Jesus is blowing the lid off the whole thing for Nicodemus. Uh, the nation of Israel, Nicodemus as kind of a representative, especially as a, as a Pharisee representing this, he would have, they were so focused on their special relationship with God, his great love for them, which was magnificent and really is something to marvel at, but they lost sight, I think, of something that was central to the whole thing. Now, at this point, I want to insert, because I, I don't want for there to be a split here in Sojourn, <laughs> we're going to consider a Hebrew idiom. Now, an idiom, I, I know, okay, it's maybe been a while since you've had your grammar classes and you're thinking adverbs. Now we got to think of idioms. Idioms are figures of speech. Um, so, for instance, I could say, she was on the fence. Now, I don't mean she's literally straddled up on top of a fence. What I mean is she's trying to make a decision. She's on the fence between, am I going to choose this or am I going to choose this? I'm on the fence. What am I going to choose? That's an example of an idiom. Now, way back, okay, we're going back and forth in the Bible here. This one's easy to find, Genesis chapter 1. You don't really need to turn there. Most of you have read this chapter before. Genesis chapter 1, very theologically rich chapter. There's a lot happening there, and you can really spend a lot of time unpacking all of that. But there's this phrase that you probably have picked up on, and he saw that it was good. And he saw that it was good. It's like a refrain. It's echoing across the account of creation here. And he saw that it was good. Um, this is 
a number of scholars have recognized this is an idiom. This is an expression that kind of means something that you might not pick up on right away. Um, and a lot of scholars, not just me, a lot of different people have recognized this. This is used uh, just to give you a flavor for this, this expression, to see that it was good. When Moses was born, you remember what's happening. Pharaoh's in power. He's killing all the newborn children of Israel, just, you know, killing all, all the um, young boys that are being born. And Moses was born. The mother looked at him and it says that she saw that he was good. And then she begins to take plans to how she's going to save his life, to spare him. When it says that she saw that Moses was good. She's not saying, well, I suppose this is a good baby. She's saying she has some affection for this child. She has some desire to care for this child. Uh, similarly, we see the same phrase echoed. You remember the story where Adam and Eve are, are in the garden and they're being tempted by the serpent? And he says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? She says, oh, no, no, we can eat from any tree, just not this one. And he begins to manipulate things. And it says when Eve saw the fruit of the tree, it says she saw that it was good. She began to desire it. See, this expression, God saw that it was good, when Genesis 1, he's across the... Across, um, the account of creation, and God saw that it was good. This is an expression of saying, and God loved the world. God saw his creation, and every step of the way, he saw it, he looked at it, and he loved it. He desired it, he wanted to care for it. And at the end of creation, he saw that it was very, he deeply loved the world. This is a Hebrew idiom. And when Jesus Okay, um, sorry, I'm totally losing my notes here. Um, this is how Jesus is redirecting Nicodemus. It's, you know that same love that God has for you? That God had for the Israelites when they were in the desert and they put up the pole and, and God wanted to heal, God wanted to forgive? In that same way, God loves the whole world that he wants his son to be lifted up. Everyone could look at him, not just the snake in the desert, just for the Israelites, but Jesus would be on a cross and the whole world could see, when they see him, they would see the punishment they would deserve and they would recognize God's great love for them. He wants to heal, he wants to forgive. See, this love God has for you is for the whole world. And, and Nicodemus, he had to realize that Israel was not just the object of God's love, but God wanted for Israel to be the instrument of his love to the, spreading this true, true shalom. Uh, There's another Hebrew word there. True shalom, true peace and wholeness to the entire world. And we also need to make that same journey, the same journey that Nicodemus made. We need to, and you know, we come to Christ, you know, we're like, uh, you know the story of the prodigal son, right? We're, we're kind of like that younger son, you know, the one who's gone off, spent, you know, spent all the father's money. We recognize we need the father's love to bring us back into a right, we can't do it on our own. We need him to bring us back in. And at some point we realize that God has loved and forgiven us. And then maybe we begin to start to see God wants us to begin to be like the father, 
and to share that love and peace and welcome people into God's family, God's kingdom, because we get to be a part of something way bigger than us. I mean, that's, missions is so cool because we recognize we're part of something much bigger, not just as an object of God's love, but an instrument of his love, spreading this to the entire world. We go through our lives, we testify all the twists and turns of life, our lives testify that God is passionately in love with every person and desires a relationship with them. Um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, there's a lot of, you know, family issues when I was, when I was young, going up my family split, um, got into, you know, a lot of drugs and partying and things. Um, my life was radically transformed by God's love because someone dared to believe that God so loved the world included me too. And she shared the gospel with me and she invited me to church. I heard the message, I heard the, the gospel and I responded and I recognized. And then it, it was just a matter of weeks, months after that, I began to realize, well, God wants me to share the same message with other people. I'm not just the object of God's love, I'm the instrument of his love spreading this. And that's the same conviction that's led our family onto the missions field. I came to North Central in 1998. Um, I had a general idea of a call to missions. Um, I didn't, or a call to ministry. And then God clarified that into specifically missions my first year at North Central. Um, I met my wife there and we, we realized God so loved the world really does mean the whole world. It's Minneapolis, and Chicago, it's Toronto and Buenos Aires, it's Mogadishu and Beijing, it's Baghdad and Brussels. It really is the whole world. Um, so if, oh good, you guys are, has that been up there the whole time? Oh good, well that's the first slide. Um, <laughs> wonderful. So I was, I was 18, September 16th, 1998. I was 18 years old. That's when I first responded to this, um, you know, this invitation to carry this good news wherever God would lead me in the world. Um, I met my wife there. She was actually eight years old when she first began to say yes. And I say that uh, that's, that's deliberate, began to say yes, um, because it's not a one and done thing. You know, we say yes to God and that's great. And then we have to keep saying yes to God. Whatever we're called to, we keep responding, keep reaffirming our, and walking in that faith. And so we've, we began to say yes to this. Um, God called us to uh, serve. We have our two kids, Toby and Savannah, and we're called to serve in Europe. Um, now we're at the school, I'll share a little bit more about that, Continental Theological Seminary. Students are coming, training to be pastors, church planners, evangelists, missionaries, all kinds of different ministry that they're going into. Um, I wish I could share everything that we were involved in. Um, it was really exciting time for us because we were able to serve in so many different ways. For us, one of the real highlights that we had was serving with Students for Christ, which I was mentioned, that's like Europe's version of Chi Alpha. And so we, um, we participated in the local Students for Christ group there in Brussels, um, led, helped lead some events with them. Um, I, what I did was um, I was, uh, as a, a teaching opportunity, we would show a movie. I did this at the seminary. We would show a, 
a modern movie that explored some ideas of faith and then I put together a panel of theologians and I kind of chaired the discussion and we just talked about, you know, how does this help us understand and think through, wrestle through our faith? And then, Kai, uh, sorry, Kai Alpha, Students for Christ, I was sharing with my friend this event that I was putting on. He said, well, we need to do that too. And so he invited me to come and, and to help be on a panel to, you know, we showed a movie and it was a really fun way to explore faith and how we express our faith in the modern secular context of Europe. Um, we also then were part of the Students for Christ. They have an international conference they would do every summer. Uh, Dr. Amy has, uh, how many times have you taught? Three or four times she's led. Um, it, was, it was a great honor to be invited to participate in that and provide the biblical training portion for this international conference. They have all the Students for Christ leaders um, across Europe coming together for this event. They do really fantastic training. Um, that's kind of like a hallmark of Students for Christ. Their training is top notch. And so we were very honored to be a part of that, um, that ministry. If you can go to, oh, sorry, the previous slide. There we go. So um, I don't know how well your geography is, but here's a, a showing the relative sizes of, of Brussels where we were uh, compared to Minnesota. And you can see, you know, the relative size, I think it's like a seventh of the size or something like that. Um, but very dense. You look at the population, Brussels is a, or Belgium is a very dense country. Brussels is uh, one of the, if not the densest city um, in Europe. It's, it's right up there though. It's very uh, packed together. Um, but less than 2% of Belgians uh, have a personal relationship with Jesus. And we, we talk about this. We're talking about um, whether evangelical, Pentecostal, Catholic. These are just people that have a personal relationship with Jesus, whatever you know, sort of church denominational background they're from. Um, and I mean, I could tell you time and time again, we would meet people. Uh, we would meet you know, uh, parents, our kids were in the Belgian school and we would, you know, we'd have like birthday parties and things and I'd get to talk and get to know some of the other parents. And over and over again, they'd never met a Christian before. Like someone, not just someone who claimed like, oh yeah, I'm registered as Catholic or something, but they'd never met someone that actually believes this stuff. And we would share our faith. We'd share our lives with them. Um, the, the reality for Europe is that, um, uh, very large part of Europe is what we call secular. I mean, we could spend a lot of time, actually Ryan's brother, Sean Gallion, missionary that was mentioned um, in Spain and doing like leadership for Europe. He's really helping to spearhead this uh, understanding what it means to minister to secular people. Because it's not exactly the same as atheists. A lot of times those two are, are put together and it's not exactly the same. A lot of secular people are very open to spiritual things, but their own self is like the center of their identity and how they make decisions. And the, like, as a Christian, we have a worldview with, we try, try to have God at the center of our lives. That that's how we identify ourselves. That's how we make decisions, how we, we process the world um, in a Muslim country. Their conception of God, Muhammad, that would be at the center of their identity. In a secular world, in a secular Europe, it's their own self as the center of their identity and how they process the world. And it creates uh, unique, challenging um, 
you know, aspects of ministry that we, that we work through. You can go to the next uh, slide here. So this is the school that we're at. This is Continental Theological Seminary. It, I mean, it's an exciting place. It's strategically in Brussels. You, you probably know Brussels is like the capital of Europe. You have the European Commission, the Parliament is there in the city. So it's very international. It's right, you know, kind of in the center of the continent. And so it fits, it's the regional training school. So we'll have like a handful of Belgians in our class uh, in the school, but we'll also have students from the Netherlands and France and Spain, Portugal, a whole group from Italy, um, uh, Eastern Europe. I mean, just kind of coming from all over Europe, but then beyond Europe as well. So we would have um, an, an average year, about 120 students representing, again, about 35 different nations. So you do the math, you don't get a very high concentration from any one uh, particular country. Uh, it's exciting. We would have, um, and you can just kind of scroll through the rest of the pictures here. Um, I'm not gonna introduce these ones, but just so you can see, um, there we go. Uh, just so you can see some of the faces of the, the students that we had there. We had students like Patrick. Uh, Patrick was a student, he was actually born in Ghana. Um, and he grew up really uh, deep in the jungle, very far away from the city. I was asking him about like his family background. He said his, his father was the witch doctor for the tribe there. Um, and that's the environment that he grew up in. When he got older, he decided that he wanted to go to the city so that he could uh, go to school and become a teacher. Um, while he went to the city, someone shared the gospel with him. He heard the good news. He became a Christian. Very exciting. His life took twists and turns. He went to the Northern Europe. He decided this is too cold. Someone said, you should come to Italy. It's a little bit more like Africa. And he said, Italy's good. Um, so he came down to Italy. Um, and there God began to raise him up in ministry. Um, it was really exciting to see, you know, to hear the story about how God raised him up. And when we met him, he came to our Bible school. He was pastoring seven churches. Um, like giving like the pastoral oversight to seven churches at one time because there had been these great things happening among the African Christians in Italy. And it was really cool to see these churches being planted. The problem is they needed more training. Um, there was a great desire among the Italian Africans to uh, provide better training. So he came to our school so that he could... Um, I, I had him, I taught him uh, Hebrew and Greek, and then he was going to, once he finished his program there, he was gonna go teach in a Bible school in Italy so that they can train more African Italian pastors down there. It's really exciting to get to know him. Uh, we also had students like uh, Hakim. Uh, Hakim, it's not his real name. Um, he's a, a student from Pakistan. He's really sensitive about, uh, he doesn't want his picture being shown. He doesn't want his real name being uh, used um, because of the very real situation that he is in in Pakistan, if it was uh, to be known really what he's about. Um, now his family, they're Christians. Uh, he had to leave his wife and kids in Pakistan. He was passionate about seeing the Bible translated into these local languages in Pakistan, these smaller people groups and tribes that didn't have the Bible translated from the original languages into their language. And so I was, it was real excited. I mean, I had him 
only for Hebrew, and he was really into Hebrew idioms. Like he wanted to know these things and he wanted to be able to understand so he could translate accurately. Uh, a lot of fun to have him in class. And when he graduates, he's gonna return to Pakistan and he's going to be work. He's already been working with Wycliffe um, uh, Bible translators. He's gonna continue working with them. Um, so very exciting. Or we had students like Tebow. Uh, Tebow was, it, it's like Tim Tebow, but spelled completely differently. But Tebow was a student from Switzerland. Um, he was, we met him right away because my first semester teaching we met him at like an all school barbecue, but then we found out he was in every single one of my classes that first year. So I really got to know him. We you know, had him over to our house and um, spent time together. He was from Switzerland. He had actually gone to college and got a degree as an architect. And he was then beginning to work as an architect. I think houses, he was designing houses and doing his job, but he loved Jesus. And so he would go into the streets of the city where he was from and he would just share the gospel. Um, just anyone who he could find in the street, share the gospel. And one by one, some people started getting saved. And he knew that you don't just share the gospel, they pray a prayer and you send them on the way. He knew that you have to then disciple them. So he invited them into his house. He began having Bible studies one by one. More people are being added to the Bible study. The Bible study starts growing. He and his friend are leading it and they realize, well, we're kind of starting a church here, aren't we? Yeah, I think we're starting a church here, but I don't, I've never studied anything about ministry um, and I don't really know a whole lot about how to lead a church. So he came to our school. We met him in his last year there. Um, it was real exciting to work with him. And then we got to see him graduate, return to Switzerland and return to the ministry that his friend had been kind of overseeing while he was a student. Um, before all the COVID happened, they led their uh, now, you know, starting as a church, they led them on their first missions trip and they took them down in the Congo and they did some ministry down there. It was real exciting to see how they were beginning to step forward. And now he's, um, he's right on the cusp of starting um, a master's program. He wants, to, he wants to do Old Testament. Um, he's going to start a master's program in Old Testament uh, at a great school in Belgium, um, at L the Louvain. Um, so Europe... Okay, we're kind of wrapping up here. Europe has this reputation as being a spiritually dark place, right? Um, I don't know if you've heard this, but it's, it has this reputation of being a spiritually dark and like oppressive place. And I can tell you, there is some truth to that. Um, we, we definitely felt it. We definitely had spiritual attacks that we went through. Um, it was awesome to have churches like you, uh, you guys. You were praying for us, lifting us up, um, and other churches, people that were, were supporting us, praying for us. Um, God's love burns bright though. It burns bright for the whole world. In the same way that God loved the Israelites, he loves the whole world. And with you, we are believing that the light of the gospel is going to push back the darkness in Europe. The darkness cannot overcome the light, right? Another John, John's, John's gospel is just where it's at today. Um, Craig, if you wanna uh, come up after the service, we're gonna have our table back there. Um, we have some prayer cards. If you would uh, pick one of those up, pray for us. We would 
deeply appreciate it. We have some more information about the ministry. We'd love just to get to know you. Um, if you have kids, we have some coloring pages and word searches and things like that that are fun. Um, but again, thank you very much for your support. We deeply appreciate you, Sojourn. Thank you. Yeah.